Welcome to the Majlis, podcast of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. Majlis is the Arabic word for an assembly, literally a gathering of people sitting together, and it was used for the sessions of learned scholars, philosophers, intellectuals, and artists brought together to discuss and debate. Our podcast intends to accomplish the same purpose of bringing together experts and scholars for discussion and conversation about the politics, histories, cultures of the Middle East, Islamic world, and Muslim diasporas. You can find the Majlis on your favorite podcast site, including Spotify and Apple iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think by giving us a rating. Welcome to the Majlis. Uh, I'm really excited about our conversation today, talking about Elizabeth Thompson's new book, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs. Um, and it focuses on a particular episode of the Syrian Arab Congress and the destruction of its historic liberal Islamic alliance. And um, with me today, I'm particularly delighted to welcome my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Ariel Salzman, who teaches Ottoman and Mediterranean history uh, here at Queen's University, um, to join me as a co-host in this conversation. Ariel, welcome to the Majlis. Welcome to Elizabeth again, and thank you. I'm happy to be the co-host. It's great to have you here with us. Yeah, and Elizabeth Thompson is a historian of social movements and liberal constitutionalism in the Middle East with a focus on how race and gender have conditioned foreign intervention and the application of international law. I think we're going to hear quite a bit about some of these topics. She's the author of two previous books, um, including uh, Colonial Citizens, Republican Rights, Paternal Privilege and Gender in French Syria and Lebanon, and more recently, Justice Interrupted, the struggle for constitutional government in the Middle East. And I think if we could frame our topic today is we wanna talk about those histories of struggles for democracy and social justice in the Middle East. So welcome so much, Elizabeth. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Adna. Well, I just wanted to start off and ask you, um, how did you get into writing this book? What inspired your interest? Uh, it has many genealogies and in many ways it does build on the previous book. So thank you for mentioning those. Um, I had, uh, in the course of writing this, well, the first book was about uh, the ways in which uh, populations under French rule in the 30s and the 20s and 30s and 40s uh, used the conditions of what was called a mandate uh, imposed by the League of Nations. It was supposed to be um, a temporary period of tutelage uh, guidance so that the, they would learn to rule themselves. And it was overseen by the League of Nations. And so um, people use that framework to advance what were essentially uh, democratic agendas. I looked at multiple movements, Islamic movements, women's movement, the labor movement, as well as the much studied nationalist movement, which was an elitist movement, right? And uh, what surprised me uh, was the degree to which 
they had laid the framework for um, the Republic to come as an independent state, as independent states of Syria and Lebanon. They were separate um, uh, after the French left. Uh, but uh, I realized that the the framework of colonial rule set up particular obstacles to establishing rule of law equally over all citizens. Okay, so that's one piece. And I thought, well, maybe we need to go back further. You know, was there, um, you know, a democratic moment before the French came in and the mandate started in 1920? So that's one piece. And as you mentioned, I was writing a second book which really looked at the um, largest movements of their day in any given country. There are 11, 12 chapters there. And, um, you know, I did look at the persistent democratic culture within a kind of democratic socialism in Syria after independence. Uh, but I became intrigued by the fact that um, reference was made to the very brief period of Syrian self-rule uh, right after World War I. So that's all well and good. And I agreed to give a conference paper in the summer of 2013 um, on that 1920 government. And that it was the, it, it's interesting. It was the contemporary circumstances of that summer that had really brought to light what was special and what needed to be said about what happened in 1920. Um, that was the summer that an elected the first elected president of Egypt was toppled by the army, Mohammed Morsi. He was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and had tried to barrel through ill-advisedly a very Islamic constitution against a, uh, what was self-described secularist liberal uh, uh, coalition that had uh, uh, backed his opponent in the 2012 elections. Uh, this was all, of course, as I'm sure many of your viewers know, had followed the uh, 2011 uprising, so-called Arab Spring, and the toppling of a longtime military dictator, Hosni Mubarak, in Egypt. Now, two things about that. I had gone to Egypt and decided to write a final chapter on Egypt um, and what happened in 2011 for my book on Justice Interrupted, and interviewed people who were still in Tahrir Square. I did not go at the beginning of that year. I went in December. But there were still people occupying to a lesser degree, um, and I talked to them. It was fascinating. They had mm, the most rudimentary knowledge of the political history of their own country. And I immediately recognized that this was the case in Syria as well, because I had been a student at the University of Damascus and taken history classes there, right? And history is a very controversial topic, uh, often a taboo topic. And, um, you know, the, the, the sort of um, textbooks used even at the college level are, um, you know, committee written to avoid any controversy whatsoever. So, okay, so people are telling me, oh, back in the good old days before the 1952 revolution, we had a, you know, a, a constitution, a liberal democracy and elections. And um, it was just sad to see, see that people who were trying to forge a constitutional government of their own in 2011, 2012, 
um, had very little knowledge to go back on and very little sense of their connection to earlier struggles for democracy. All right. Um, so I thought it was really important, uh, having joined my own protests in this country and come to recognize that at any given moment, you can see yourself, if you're aware of history, as building on movements that came before for a greater cause, but that that knowledge was being denied and censored, right, um, on the part of governments in the Middle East, and that that would be a handicap to mobilization. So all this to say, I thought it was really important to write up what seemed to be an ignored or suppressed democratic moment in not just Syrian history. This was a Congress in Damascus that convened delegates from what is today Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. Observers came from Iraq as well. And a good number of people in Damascus at that moment had been resident in Egypt uh, in exile from the Ottoman Empire. So what happened there was broadcast throughout the Eastern Arab world. And let's not forget that Syria existed um, as a sort of autonomous entity in the years after World War I, um, thanks to uh, Sharif Hussein in Mecca, who's, uh, who, who launched the Arab revolt alongside the British and won at least, uh, well, the hollow promises they turned out to be for an independent state in the region stretching from Syria all the way down to Arabia, right? So this was a big echo chamber. And it was not just a micro story of uh, a battle between young men and their aristocratic elders, which is the way in which the story had been told in the past. And the emphasis in prior narratives had been on simply on the issue of independence. And I was struck, at least in English, certainly in French, and mostly in Arabic, with a couple exceptions, um, the fact that this Congress was convened explicitly to write a constitution and that it sat and deliberated and ratified in full in a first round approval, a 147 article constitution was never acknowledged. And so that was quite curious and so worth telling. The exception is there is one book in uh, Arabic by a woman named Mari Shahrastan that did look at the building of the constitution and thanks to her, I had a place to begin in telling the story. So there you go, that's how I came to the project. Uh, uh, final piece though came in August of 2013. There I am finishing my paper that I'm gonna give at a conference at Princeton the next month. And um, not only is Morsi in jail, but 400 members of the Muslim Brotherhood were massacred in a square in Cairo, right? And what struck me as the most important story to tell about 1920 was that in that year, uh, self-styled religious, we might call them Islamists today, that wasn't the lingo back then per se, had worked alongside of self-styled secular liberals to forge a constitution together. And here we saw in 2013, um, the opening of a very violent and deep cleavage between liberals and um, religiously minded um, Muslim brothers, right? And so I thought it was an important story to tell where and how did that friction come? How was it that we began to construct um, 
our, our, our scholarly question as the problem of Islam against democracy, right? And so uh, um, I, I hope the book has uh, achieved a little bit in convincing people that that was a very recently manufactured cleavage and opposition. Yes, well, that's a fantastic uh, account. I think there's so much to talk about here, and we will certainly want to come to talk about that um, you know, secular, religious divide, the sort of contemporary history of the legacy of this of this um, division that you've been mentoring. But I think even before that, uh, it might be worth going back a little further in some of the fascinating precursors and earlier histories. I mean, you know, this history of democracy in the Middle East is so poorly known and not uh, acknowledged. Maybe um, my colleague, uh, uh, Ariel, uh, would be interested to talk a little bit about that backstory to go further in, in, in history. Yeah, I was going to I was going to follow up because, um, you know, uh, I think there's an, you know, on the one side, there's the way that the Middle East, um, because of the way that history has been taught and written, official history has been taught, the way um, the, the blinkers and blinders and seeing their own past, um, their own possibilities, these turning points. And on the other side, there's that, and I think this was also an influence in, in choosing this moment, there's the Lawrence of Arabia version, the external version, which paints the Middle East as this, you know, continuum of chaos and violence and inability to govern oneself, which is, of course, um, you know, the pretext for the whole mandate system, right? Um, but in that sense, uh, you know, what is elided in which you pick up on earlier, of course, in Justice Interrupted, is that not only is there this history of social movements, of, um, you know, of um, rebellion and pushback against colonialism, imperialism, um, you know, pan-movements, pan, pan pan-Islam movements that were mainly focused at anti-colonialism. Mm -hmm. They were not about, you know, creating any, imposing any kind of particular state. Their agenda with al-Afghani was really anti-colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also Ottoman precedents that, again, yes. are, are neglected in, in the story yes. that established, um, and, and in Iran too, uh, constitutional movements. So, I would like to know what sort of continuum did you see there and how did these actors carry over? After all, the Ottoman Empire is, is still, around, you know, still around until it's dissolved in the 20s, uh, in the early 20s. And a lot of these people were Ottomans. They, yes, they came out they of the were. Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Yes, they were. Um, Prince Faisal, who the executive uh, elected king by the Congress, was himself a, 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 a child of uh, the Ottoman capital, right? He grew up in Istanbul and uh, many of the delegates had been uh, elected to parliament uh, uh, after 1908 or in the 1908 elections or the following ones in the second constitutional period in Ottoman history. In fact, one, um, some of them were the sons of. So there's a, a joke told by a future prime minister of Lebanon, Riyad Soh about accompanying his father who was uh, elected to the parliament in 1908. And they were present when uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid opened the parliament in December of 1908. And uh, Riyad Sol is, is telling the story in retrospect after the French had come in and destroyed the constitutional government at Damascus, okay? So he says, yes, isn't it ironic that Sultan Abd Abdul Hamid stood up there 
and told us all in the room that he had only taken away the constitution decades before because we were too immature to rule ourselves, but that he had decided we were mature enough to rule ourselves finally in December, 1908. And by contrast, the French had decreed and the Paris Peace Conference had decreed uh, in 1920 that nay, 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 the Syrians, the Lebanese were not mature enough to rule themselves and should therefore be colonized by the French. So they were very much aware of the continuity uh, um, uh, in political traditions and culture uh, from the late Ottoman period. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in a comparative sense, if I were to contribute a version of this story to a volume, say, on political legacies of World War I, the case of Syria would stand out as an unusual, rare case where uh, the consensus, political con consensus came to be to turn back the clock and return to what the war had broken, right? To return to the democracy of the constitutional monarchy they should have had in 1908 through 1912 before the coup of uh, 1913 um, put an end to constitutional politics, right? And the narrative in uh, European history is one in which of a war that produced instead uh, states that had come to control politics and the economy and a wartime economy extending that centralized control or new states uh, commandeered by nationalist movements that were anything but tolerant of uh, a diverse population and uh, not necessarily democratic at all, right? Uh, and here, uh, for the Syrians and uh, the uh, many Arabs who gathered in Damascus in the spring of 1920, what their project was, was to restore uh, the equality of citizens, including uh, non-Muslims, and to restore power to the people. Uh, the constitution that they wrote that year, they self-consciously shifted power from the uh, monarch to the parliament. Uh, if you compare the constitution of 1920 in Syria to the amended 1909 constitution in the Ottoman Empire, you'll see that the, uh, the uh, parliament retains the control of uh, hiring and firing in the cabinet. The cabinet ministers are responsible to uh, the parliament, not to the monarch. Um, and they go further, and perhaps we'll get to this topic in a few minutes, right? Um, they shun any mention of uh, the state as an Islamic state or of Sharia law as uh, a foundation for, for law in Syria, which are marked differences from the Ottoman. You know, in that sense, they're, they're building, you know, they're building on that they're advancing it, they're developing exactly. it Exactly, that's what they saw and themselves and doing. Progressive. But, but also that experience um, of elections and the way that in a city like Beirut or Istanbul, the elections for parliament were organized so as to bring Muslims and non-Muslims often from the same uh, district or Mahale um, to send them to Istanbul together to have um, a really remarkable system of, of, of representation and, you know, efforts for equality between Muslims and non-Muslims and, um, and how, um, and, and so I'd like to ask you more about how the debates around or whether there was great debates around uh, granting Muslims and non-Muslims equity, uh, equality uh, before the law 
um, in the Syrian conflict? Oh, sure there were. I mean, oh. as, as there had been in the Ottoman period, there were people who were quite worried. Uh, there were people who argued, oh, I'll never take orders in the army from a non-Muslim and, and so on. Um, here, I think, you know, as, a histori as historians, we are sensitive to the fact that um, there may be ongoing conflicts in any polity, right? Um, but that circumstances may occur at specific moments that foster, I don't know, the will to come to compromise, if you will. And here we had the fear of the Paris Peace Conference and the fear of French colonization bringing um, uh, you know, the different factions together that might not otherwise have agreed on uh, some of the principles that are embodied in that constitution. Not unlike if you read uh, American history in the 18th century, right? There, there was much contention amongst different factions in the 1760s and 1770s and into the 1780s on what the polity would look like once the Americans achieved independence, no doubt. But there was by having to unite against a common enemy, the British, right? A, a, a vehicle for bringing at least the majority factions together on, you know, to agree on something. So without that threat in Paris, perhaps this would not have happened. I, I'm, I'm not gonna engage in any counterfactualisms, but I do think that as historians, we can see that sometimes the really good things that happen in history come, but through the confluence of many factors that you cannot control, right? Um, and that there, there are moments like Ram, Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, erstwhile chief of staff said, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Um, that uh, you have to strike when the iron's hot. And this was that moment. Yeah, well, similarly, the first Ottoman constitutional period came, you know, as as Russian right. boats were bearing down on the exactly. city of Istanbul. And, exactly. you know, and uh, so, yeah, so this this confluence, especially when you have this very unequal, but I, but, you know, I tend to think that there was already fertile ground for, you know, from the Tanzimat onward for accepting some degree of equality, especially in cities. Um, it yeah. might have been, you know, more difficult in, in certain areas and stuff like that. And they'd already served together in 1908 and they served together in 1912, um, you know, Muslims and non-Muslims. Right. That right. said, there was a one point that they couldn't really push through. And that is another thread of a story that you told earlier, but of course for a later period, and that's women's rights. Uh, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, again, as historians, we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, women are just gaining, gaining rights around the world um, in much more established democratic uh, settings, um, are first becoming, you know, gaining suffrage. Um, so we tend to, you know, place these things out of, out of the global context. Um, right. But perhaps you can say a little bit more about um, the discussions about women's rights in that Congress. Ah, well, um, you know, I wrote about it 20 years ago in my first book, and I came to a revised understanding of that moment in the third book. So, you know, it's been um, a humbling, but also, you know, um, rewarding uh, experience to work with what few sources we have, I have to say, um, you know, I've been asked to, <laughs> by a French magazine uh, journal, to write an article on 
the ways in which colonial, colonially minded French officials have erased uh, and distorted uh, the historical record in former colonies here, you know, calling Syria a colony, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, they raided the offices of the Congress building immediately upon occupying Damascus. And uh, we have hints from various memoirs that there was a market, that there were Syrians who colluded with the French in order to earn a tidy sum. The French would buy the records. Um, and I have an order from the French prime minister himself to destroy every trace of that government. Why? Right? The gov because the government was not the fanatical Muslim theocracy that they had uh, portrayed it to be back in Paris. And these, uh, this record would be incriminating. That's all well and good, but as a historian, I suffer from a very partial record. So um, even so, we've been able to piece together, thanks to um, one newspaper, the full discussion that went on on one particular day uh, when the, the su suffrage issue was raised. And what I've learned, you know, is that there's a very, a very important twist to the story. Yes, in the end, the, um, the question was set aside, right, for a later date, uh, because it was considered too contentious and divisive. And in fact, I theorize that the Congress, Congress leaders thought the whole Congress might dissolve over the question, right? Um, and they had the French right next door assembling their, you know, army of invasion. And so Rashid Ridda, the president, oh, not yet president, this is the interesting thing. He is not yet president, but he was an eminent uh, delegate, representative of Tripoli, Lebanon, uh, stood up to try to draw a compromise from the two sides, which had both each argued that is, you know, Islam dictates either A, women should have the vote, or B, should not have the vote, depending on which verses of the Quran or which hadith you wanted to trot out. And what's important about Ridda, who you know, um, was considered an expert, he, he published an Islamic magazine, uh, uh, Amanar, uh, and uh, responded to fatwas from around the Islamic world. He's the kind of guy when you, know, you met him, you were supposed to kiss his ring, you know, and people all clap when he stands up. So again, think about serendipity or contingency in history. You know, the future of this Congress actually hinged on the fact that you had somebody participating whose opinion would be respected. And then it comes out with something quite startling, particularly for a modern day 2020 audience by saying Islam, Islam has nothing to do with women's rights, right? And insisting that the, the jurisdiction of Islamic law has boundaries in areas that pertain directly to religion and that the job of the future of the Congress and of the future parliament in Syria was to adjudicate laws for human society and its needs today that stretch well beyond the particular sphere of religious um, uh, interest. And so in that spirit, he then said, your job is to decide on whether women should have the vote today based on the public interest, okay? In Arabic and maslaha al-am. 
Yeah. And, uh, and he said, we have a mob outside that's been you know, organized by an opponent, ringing up the doors, and we have the French assembling over in Lebanon. Uh, I think our public interest today, the overriding public interest this day is unity. And that he says, he calls, he establishes a motion or calls for a motion to set aside the question for now. The language in the constitution uses a neutral masculine, but it does not say men get the vote, just Syrians get the vote, but using a masculine gender um, to leave a door open for future change. And a commentary made at the, on that day was twofold. One, we will make sure that the constitution calls for women's education as a way of putting those conservatives in their place. We are not leaving women out, uh, you know, excluding people from this polity. Uh, and number two, uh, the secretary of the Congress, a man from Nablus now in, um, in, in Palestine, um, wrote, but in fact, everybody in the room knew we had a majority, right? And so we recorded that for posterity. That, that's interesting. So it was quite interesting, right? <laughs> that was one of, one of and probably uh, uh, Adnan would like to follow up on this, but that was another compromise in the way, you know, the, the, the delicate way that they managed and uh, smoothed over these contradictions when it came to Muslim and non-Muslim, but yet preserving an Islamic character to the state, right? Um, uh, the, 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 in principle, the governance, right. the structure of governance followed Islamic principles. That's what Rashid Ridda believed. Uh -huh. um, the other compromise, of course, was uh, in Article 1 to say that the uh, religion of the king would be Islam. That was a compromise point with those who were very uncomfortable um, that the, the, with a Congress that might, they feared might even go so far as to establish a republic and abolish a monarchy. Um, and, and it was made in the spirit of continuity with Ottoman political culture. You know, we are governing over uh, a polity that expects that their, uh, their, their monarch would be a Muslim, you know, um, and, and you know, even Ridda predicted there would, it would probably incite revolt if you expunged a completely, completely compromised, uh, you know, made in, that was in March of 1920. That's yeah, true. but the monarch would be uh, Muslim, but the state would not. There's no mention of Islamic law. Right. He is. He swears to obey divine laws, plural, mm -hmm. divine laws, right? Um, not Islamic law. If you look in the Ottoman constitution, um, the sultan, right, upholds explicitly Islamic law. So they yeah, made it's that really change. interesting that um, Rida is arguing there very much on pragmatic grounds. It'll incite a revolt. Um, and so that yes. you know, ring, brings up an interesting issue when you characterize this as a liberal Islamic uh, alliance, um, one that doesn't you know, end up going forward. And sadly, if you reflect on the contemporary period, it's not even really envisioned that it could be possible in some ways. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more mm -hmm. about the context and the character of the thought and the sorts of issues and debates besides the women question and how Islam was uh, invoked not to invoke it uh, and to draw some delimiting boundaries. Mm. What the kinds of ideas were about how to reconcile a sort of idea of a secular state um, that would have an Islamic character, at least in the shape of the, the king, um, 
how was this envisioned and in what ways for people who might be surprised to understand that a very respected Islamic legal scholar is the one who is making the arguments about the need for sovereignty being placed in popular terms rather than divine terms. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. I was not expecting to find such a commitment so early on um, to the idea of popular sovereignty, right? I mean, in my first Middle East history class, you know, that, that, that idea comes much later, you know, um, and unfortunately in terms of like Nasserism or something, you know, in the 50s. Uh, so, um, and it runs up against um, a histori historiography, uh, even in my first stages of research, that insisted that um, good Muslims could never accept popular sovereignty, you know, as an infringement on, on Islamic law as late as, I'm gonna say 1952 in the uh, Middle East Journal, which is put out by the Middle East Institute here in Washington, DC, um, and then uh, Majid Khadouri, a well-known scholar, published an article on the Syrian, newest Syrian constitution of 1950. And he actually wrote, oh, and in keeping with constitutional tradition in Syria, going back to 1920, right? Uh, legislation rests on Islamic law. And <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> and then what did I discover? Going back to my problem of um, the French tampering uh, with the historiography, and we should all be aware of what we think we know when we use those sources from Britain and France, right? Um, you know, is that he had used the um, doctored French translation of the 1920 uh, constitution and which in article one says, you know, um, Syria is, uh, uh, you know, constitutional monarchy, capital is Damascus, language is Arabic and the religion of the king, uh, religion of the king is Islam, right? And in the French translation it says, and the religion of the state is Islam, right? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I searched and searched and searched in the French archives. I'm convinced that they were purged, you know, um, but I know exactly when that translation was made. It was made in August of 1920, about a month after the invasion in Beirut. I even know who translated it. He's a man who was born in Algeria and was independently um, praised for uh, how good his Arabic was. He was a Frenchman. I mean, you know, he's a French Algerian, right? Um, so there's no way he, Perhaps he was, a, he was a, a, an accident. Uh, an right. absolutist right. and thought the l'état est moi, you know, he's just the king, you know, it must be this. <laughs> Perhaps, but I think he was playing rather to a script that was um, being, had been crafted at Paris by the colonial lobby in France that um, Muslims uh, you know, must live under Islamic law. This is, this is an Algeria, it's probably something coming out of the French rule of Algeria, right? Because to be a full citizen in France, an Algerian had to give up his or her Islamic law, right? And so, you know, here are Muslims who are not living under the French and not secular, so they must live under there. So there's a, probably a preconception, but it was turned to um, interesting political use which uh, maybe Ariel, Ariel can comment on as well, and that's this, that the French were busy constructing Muslims as a kind of race and as automatons who uh, 
who, who follow their sacred law. And why was that of useful to the French in Paris in 1919, 1920? Because then they could point to Muslims who by nature have theocracies and massacre Christians. So they actually used the Armenian genocide to try to tar Faisal and Syrians as Muslims who would, if given the opportunity, slaughter the Christians, particularly those on Mount Lebanon. And uh, the Maronite church was happy to collude in the fabrication of this narrative. So it was really a, actually a, a light bulb moment for me to reread uh, these speeches and, um, uh, uh, and pamphlets that Faisal and his group crafted uh, in Paris to understand that perhaps the true root of Arab nationalism and the sense of Arab identity was the need to say, we are not Turks. <laughs> we may be Muslim, but we're not gonna go ma massacre our Christians. I don't know um, whether you have any comment on that one, Ariel. Well, you know, I, I, I think everything, I, I'd like to comment on a lot of it, but, um, and, um, you know, we see this, this process, you know, uh, of rewriting history after an invasion. I mean, I can trace it back to actually the 18th century when the British forge French documents to uh, justify their invasion of part of India, uh, you know, which they claim to have retrieved and, you know, and, and people believed it up till very recently, you know, that that, that was the case. So, you know, this, this revisionism and uh, rewriting of causes belli and, and uh, colonialism, I think is much more widespread, as you said. What I'd like to maybe conclude with is asking you what the reception has been of your book um, in Syria and Lebanon, given mm. the, the crises that are there and mm. uh, given basically the destruction, near destruction of, of the Syrian state and um, the dispersal of so many of its um, citizens. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, what has been the reception? Uh, I know it hasn't been translated yet. We are hopeful that it's gonna be translated in many languages, but um, <laughs> What's the oh, Arab reception been? Oh yeah, no, it's been great. Um, I gave a, a webinar in July that uh, 800, I'm told 800 Syrians tuned into, none of them inside Syria, right? But, um, and I've got, uh, I do have my contract for translation, probably be out, um, well, maybe in a year, maybe a little more. Um, but uh, that's from the Arab Center, it's based in Doha. And uh, the translation bureau is in Beirut though. And I have luckily a Syrian who will translate it. Um, and now I have interest from a documentary filmmaker who's gonna pitch a documentary proposal to Jazeera. So um, what I have run into, and this is maybe a topic for another day, is the fact that the Arab public sphere is now split between those who get funding from the Saudis and those who get funding from Qatar. And so the Saudi sphere has not shown as much enthusiasm as you might imagine. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been gratifying, you know. It's yeah, been, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's good. Thank you. Well, um, this has been a great discussion. There's so much more to talk about because this interesting and fascinating, poorly known episode um, just connects with so many contemporary issues and developments and as a wonderful window venue onto the history of both that period and for reflection 
on our own time to think of the legacies of the intervening period and how much has changed. I want to encourage um, everyone to buy this uh, book and check it out. Um, it's called How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, the Syrian Arab Congress of 1920 and the Destruction of its Historic Liberal Islamic Alliance. It's a great read. It's wonderfully <laughs> written. And I think it would actually make a very interesting feature film, to be honest, with all the intrigue in and around the Paris uh, conference and the fact that um, very surprisingly to people, Syria seemed to have been center stage in some of the discussions in the post-World War I geopolitical machinations. It was a real important test case uh, for uh, what would happen afterwards. Um, and it's a disillusioning history in some ways to see um, how um, these good intentions and these wonderful principles were subverted. Um, but it's a fascinating story. I want to thank you very much, Elizabeth, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for joining us in the Majlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives, or MSGP, is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca slash msgp, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter at msgpqu and on our Facebook, msgpqu. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Mitchless.